Thank you, Brenda, for that. Keep praying for Connie Haynes. She had her ankle surgery on Monday and a very intricate, very intense surgery and just a lot of pain. And be praying for her and Jim as she goes through an extensive recovery process. Well, we're in week three of our series, Men Who Made an Impact. And today we're headed to 2 Timothy 1 for a reading. And if those of you who are able would please stand. Uh, We'll start reading there in verse number 13. And read to the end of chapter 1 here this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse number 13. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee, keep by the Holy Ghost, which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy out of the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. This morning we're going to take a look at a man named Onesiphorus and see the impact that he made in the kingdom of God. And let's pray together. Father, would you work now in our hearts through this passage? And the Word of God, I pray that the Word of God would come alive to us. And we would understand what you would have us to do as a result. Help us to apply it in our lives. And we'll thank you for these things. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And would you listen as Rochelle sings this morning? Jesus 
That's one of my favorite songs. Really liked that one. Well, when you read the New Testament, over half of which was penned in a human way by a guy named Paul, you find that he took great care to remember and recommend the people that had made an impact on his life. And if you were in life group this morning, we saw several people never even heard of before that Paul recognized their impact. Tychicus and Epaphras, and I don't even remember who they all were, Luke, and, and uh, several of those guys. But even though the passage we're reading in 2 Timothy isn't very long, just a few verses, there are some important ideas that we can see from studying it this morning. Onesiphorus here in this passage was a friend to the Apostle Paul at the point of his deepest need. You know, there are sometimes people who show up and they intersect your deepest need, and you remember them for a lifetime. You may never see them again. You maybe don't even know their name, but they were there at the point of your deepest need. I remember years and years ago, uh, I think Cody and Dawson were just tiny and in their car seats, and my wife was over in Meridian, and she got rear-ended. And she called me, and she's crying. And she told me, somebody just hit my car. Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, we're okay. And somebody had gotten out to help her. They're kind of, you know, we don't even know who it was. But just the fact that they were there at that time made a big impression. And it could be a doctor or a chaplain or a nurse, somebody who has helped you along the way. But Onesiphorus was that kind of friend to the Apostle Paul at the point of his deepest need. And this man didn't fear an association with Paul, even though he was a prisoner under Nero's cruel regime. There's something about this passage that strikes me right away. Look at verse 16 again. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus. Paul prayed that the Lord would give mercy to Onesiphorus and his family. And then again in verse 18, Paul asked the Lord to grant mercy to Onesiphorus. The Lord granted him that he may find mercy of the Lord. We don't know the situation that was taking place in this home, but we see Paul 
earnestly pleading for God's mercy. I hope you never get away from the fact that you need God's mercy. None of us are ever good enough to live without God's mercy, even for a day. And I would submit to you that if we need it for ourselves, that we have to love it for others. That's not really the message today, but it's definitely a big part of this passage. And we're going to speak of the wonderful and faithful traits that Onesiphorus showed in his life. But don't miss the fact that he needed God's mercy. You need God's mercy. I need God's mercy. And if I want it for me, I have to love it for you. Let's see the message in four parts. The notes are provided in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along with us. We began by talking about the heart to stand. The heart to stand. Check back to verse 15. Here's Paul, and this is Scripture. This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. And then he highlights two guys, of whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Here's what the picture seems to be. It's 66 AD. Paul is imprisoned in Rome. And when two associates named Phygelus and Hermogenes were running away from Paul as fast as they could go, we find Onesiphorus running in. And we see this in our own lives. We're so amazed and astounded. You think back, uh, if you were old enough to remember September 11th in 2001, and we heard story after story of firemen and police and port authority who, while others were running out of buildings, they were running in. And think of your own life when there are relationships and there are people who have run away from you in your deepest need. There are also people who ran to you. There's a story in the Bible like that of the Good Samaritan where he had a deep need, this man who was attacked, and yet the Levite and the priest walked by on the other side. But the Samaritan went to him and bound his wounds and took him to the inn on his own beast. And Onesiphorus was the guy who was running in. Seeing others run from Paul didn't affect Onesiphorus's mindset. See, he had godly discernment in knowing where to take a firm stand. That's one of the things that it seems that we're missing in 2014 is people who know when and where to take a firm stand. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament has the story of two men. And one of them is named Eliezer, the son of Dodo. That's why I've always remembered his name. because <laughs> Eliezer, the son of Dodo. The other is named Shammah. I want you to see it here this morning because the wording is so important. So if you would, flip with me back to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. If you're close to someone who doesn't have the scripture on hand there, uh, just share with them. I want you to see this passage. 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. The Tachmanite that sat in the seat, chief among the captains. The same was Adino the Esnite. He lifted up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. That's a pretty big deal. 800. 
And after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men was David. When they defied the Philistines that were there gathered together to battle. Now look at this next phrase. And the men of Israel were gone away. <clears throat> so all of the people on his side left. The men of Israel were gone away. Now look at the next two words. He arose. So everybody on Israel's team ran away and then he stood up and still fought. This is a big deal in Scripture right here. He arose and smote the Philistines until his hand was weary. Look at this. And his hand clave unto the sword. And this is a little bit bigger than carpal tunnel syndrome. Right? His hand got stuck on the sword, people. Because he was taking a stand when everybody else ran away. And the Lord wrought a great victory that day, and the people returned after him. Look at these three words. I circled them. Only to spoil. All the other people in the army, when they saw what he had done, they ran back in to pick the enemy's pockets and to raid their tents and to take their donkeys and to take their raiment. But he's the one who fought the battle. And could I tell you in your life that there are times when everybody else runs from the problem and you have to stand? And sometimes they're going to come back in and try to take the credit and they're going to try to take the spoil. But there's nobody else who's going to stand up to fight for your family other than you. Other people may talk the game, but when the Philistines show up, you're going to have to stand. Now, this is maybe going far-fetched, but do you remember who the Philistines represent in the Bible? They represent the world. What that means is when the world shows up at your house, the pastor's not going to be there. The youth leaders aren't going to be there. The good Christian peers aren't going to be there. The world's going to be there. Guess who has to fight it? You do. Dad, mom, Christian parent, you're going to have to fight the world. And sometimes you have to fight the devil inside of your own kid. And it's not fun. And then other people come back in and they try to take the credit. And they have kids that grow up and they say, that young man, he was in our youth group and now he's in the Marines. That man, he grew up under our ministries and now he's a preacher of the gospel. Right? You've heard guys say that before. Do you know where the battle was done? It was done in, at the home. The home front. In the house. And Eliezer, the son of Dodo, his hand got stuck on the sword. Now keep reading. And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. And the Philistines were gathering to a troop where was a piece of ground full of lentils. How many of you like lentils? Right? How many of you know what lentils are? Okay, that's tiny, tiny little beans or split peas or whatever they are. Uh, look at this. Where was a piece of ground full of lentils? Look at the next phrase again. And the people fled from the Philistines. 
So here's what they said. This field of beans ain't worth fighting for. And they ran off. That Shema is right there in the middle of a field of lentils. And the Philistines came and they ran away. The people fled from the Philistines. Verse 12, next three words. But he stood. But he stood. Nobody else would stand and defend it, but he stood. You know, there are sometimes young people who come to church here. And God bless them and we love them, but their parents aren't engaged spiritually. They don't have a dad at home who's fighting for them spiritually. They don't have a mom at home who's fighting for them spiritually, who's on her knees for them. And they need somebody to take up their cause. And sometimes we look at it and we say, ah, it's just another kid, just another young person. And it's like some people said, it's just a field of lentils. But they need somebody to come and stand for them and with them before God. And that's what youth camp is. It's a time where we have people who go and set aside time to stand with young people who have deep needs. And so here was just a field of lentils. And everybody said, ah, oh, it's not worth it. Not my field. Those beans aren't going to be in my cupboard. And so they ran away. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it slew the Philistines and the Lord wrought a great victory you know why the Lord can work miraculous victories because he has human instruments who are willing to stand Ezekiel one of the saddest verses in the Bible Ezekiel 22 says I sought for a man to stand in the gap and to make up the hedge to fight for Israel I'm paraphrasing the end of the verse says this, but I found none. And when there's nobody else who will stand, God can't work a victory. There's got to be a human instrument who's willing to stand more than ever. We need men who won't be carried about by every wind of doctrine, who won't be swayed by every little rumor, dissension, who won't run at the sign of trouble. We need men who will stand upon God's truth. Sophie's starting to sing some of the songs that Marlene Van Sickle does with the kids in the baby nursery. And the other day, I, I heard her say, Bible, <clears throat> clear as a bell. She, I was walking by and she went, Bible. But what did you say? And then she doesn't say it again, of course. She only says it once and then she's done. But she said Bible. And if you ever went to Sunday school, you probably sang it too. You're the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. And a Bible. And that's everywhere she learned the Word. It may not be popular in our culture to stand upon the foundation of truth that God has given us. But it's still the right thing to do. And it's still the right way to lead our families. Head back over to 2 Timothy. And when you get there, pass chapter 1 and go to chapter 2 for just a second here. 
2 Timothy chapter 2. Now look at this, verse number 15. You probably heard this verse before. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But look a little bit past that. But shun profane and vain babblings. That means stay away from stupid arguments. Stay away from chat rooms. Stay away from all the arguments that you can get into, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth the canker of whom is Hymenius and Philetus. So he's naming names. These guys were pursuing nothing. Look at verse 18, though. There's a big phrase here. Who concerning the truth have erred. What this means is these guys stood, but they stood for stupidity. Right? Have you ever known somebody who is bold in standing for their stupidity? We sometimes call them teenagers. Right? I'm going to be bold in standing for stupidity. Sometimes we call them adults. Sometimes we call them men. Sometimes we call them men in their 40s who will drive by the same gas station seven times in pursuit of finding a location but will never stop to ask directions because I'm standing my ground. I'm not wrong about this. And I finally get an amen from somebody. First one of the service, he gives an amen for that. Thank you, Chris. You know, sometimes the strongest stand we have is over something that means nothing. Who's better, the Yankees or the Red Sox? We fight about it all day. Right? Who's the best football team? We fight about it all day. And we stand for these profane and vain babblings that are meaningless. But look at verse 19. Love this verse. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. It doesn't matter what we think or what we feel or what our opinion is. The foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The foundation of God hasn't moved. Cultures moved. Churches have moved. Friends have moved. But God hasn't moved. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, that we would be men that stand firmly, men like Onesiphorus. You know, standing for truth doesn't happen in our own strength. It doesn't happen by our own motives. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Later in the passage it says, And having done all to stand, stand. I love that. Having done all to stand, stand. It means when you've done everything you can do to stand, then stand some more. I like that. It's a good passage. There in Ephesians chapter 6. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. And the cry is still coming from heaven today, folks. Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. Put it this way. 
If you aren't standing on the firm foundation of God's truth, then what is it you're standing on? If you're not fighting for God's truth, what is it you're fighting for? Sometimes we get so confused, and our perception gets so off course, and we make big deals out of things that mean nothing. And then we make a little deal out of God's truth. And we get it backward. In 1882, Priscilla Owens wrote these words. This is a great song. Listen to this. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded, firm, and deep in the Savior's love. And so the heart to stand, but then the hands to strengthen. Back in chapter 1, verse 16. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me. He oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Onesiphorus was a refreshment to the people of God. It was his practice to build others up rather than tear them down. And Paul noted this attitude, and he was grateful for the encouragement. You think of this, when Paul went to prison, he lost a lot of supporters. And he lost a ton of friends. Even though it was a Roman prison, even though Nero was a madman, even though Christians were constantly being persecuted, there were some people who used Paul's imprisonment for preaching truth as leverage for their own motives. And since the time of Paul, that refrain has been a constant. Anytime a church leader has a deep struggle, whether it's because of his boldness like Paul or because of his sin like Demas. Other leaders have used that struggle sometimes to leverage their own plans and promote their own agendas. The Apostle John talked about one of them in 3 John. And I'm going to give you a challenge to even find 3 John, okay? Uh, just go for it here. If you go to the end of the Bible, to your right, in Revelation, and then just go back a couple pages, you will be in 3 John. Tiny little sliver of a book, 14 verses long. And there's a guy in 3 John that is men mentioned here that I want you to see. 3 John, verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Here is a guy named Diotrephes 
who will not accept the fellowship of John, the beloved disciple. You know why it was? Because John, the beloved disciple, had been imprisoned and exiled to the Isle of Patmos by the Roman government. So here's a guy who's making the case before the local church that says, hey, we shouldn't listen to John because he's been exiled to Patmos. And we shouldn't receive anything he says. And we shouldn't receive anybody he sends. And so there was a big dispute going on. You know, John was the only disciple left. All of the other original disciples had already been martyred for their faith. John had been boiled in oil and exiled to an island. Now he's writing letters. Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence, was fighting against him. That's quite a phrase, isn't it? Loving to have the preeminence. Have you ever met somebody like that? Where everything in their life is all about them? Everything in their life is about them. And that's who Diotrephes was. He was one who loved to have the preeminence. But Onesiphorus, the guy we're talking about today, I know I'm spitting a lot of names out there. I don't want you to get confused. Onesiphorus was no Diotrephes. He wasn't ashamed of Paul's struggle. He lifted him up regardless of the public persona that was being set forth. And his presence alone was a huge encouragement to Paul. Just the fact that he showed up. Back in 2 Timothy 1, let's see this third part, the hunger to seek. The hunger to seek. Look at 2 Timothy 1, 17. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. When Onesiphorus couldn't initially find Paul in Rome, he could have easily given up. He could have easily just gone about his business, but he stayed and he searched. He was committed to finding Paul. And there are times when ministry requires a lengthy and a difficult pursuit. Not many people are willing to show the diligence required. We live in a generation of people that doesn't have much drive to seek anything but the latest video game or the latest movie, or the latest chart-topping song, or the latest Facebook post, or the latest reality show. That's the big things in people's lives. And even our government gets distracted. This week, the big thing was to issue a, a rescinding of six trademarks for a team named the Washington Redskins. Iraq's fallen apart. We're $17 trillion in debt. The IRS has a scandal. And we're worried about a team name that's been around for 75 years. And it just shows how sometimes we get the issue twisted. And we get our eyes on things that are meaningless. And we get distracted and we follow after things that are meaningless. But Onesiphorus continued to seek Paul. Christianity is all about seeking a person. Jesus Christ. And then seeking people who need that person. But it's also about seeking our 
hurting brother or a hurting sister. It's about noticing who's missing from a gathering instead of just going about our routines. We have to cultivate a hunger to seek after others when they're in need. I thank God for people here in the congregation who will write me a note or send me an email or text or whatever and say, have you noticed so-and-so's missing? I always appreciate that because what it means is there are people out there who have a heart for other people. And here's what they also realize. I'm only one guy. I don't notice everybody that's missing. There's nobody who could except God. And that's why we're a body of believers. So that we can help each other to know who's missing. To know who's hurting. To know who's discouraged. To know who's wounded. And to come alongside them. And to help them. That's what Onesiphorus did. But you know, it's something that has to be cultivated. We have to grow in this area. We have to grow in hunger to seek others when they're in need. Onesiphorus said, I'm not going to rest. I'm not going to leave until I see with my own eyes that Paul is being taken care of. Paul told Timothy, it's so touching to me that he said this. He sought me out very diligently and found me. I like that. He sought me out very diligently and found me. You know, there are times in my life where I thank God that people have sought me out very diligently and found me. That doesn't just mean that they showed up. It means they showed up and addressed the need. They showed up and addressed the deepest need. Just walking by somebody and shaking their head and giving the old, how's the weather, how's it going, great to see you thing, that's not showing up. Right? That's not showing up in your marriage. That's not showing up with your kids. Showing up means you're present enough to know what the needs are and then to address them. That's showing up. It got really, really quiet in here. And I didn't even get to the good part of the message where I'm going to preach you. So you guys got to stay with me now. We have to show up and address the actual needs of each other. That's what Onesiphorus did. And it was because of this fourth part, and I hope you won't miss this, miss this, this is the big part, the humility to serve. The humility to serve. <clears throat> Look at verse number 18 again. Middle of the verse. In how many things he ministered unto me. In how many things he ministered unto me. You know what ministry is? Here's what it means. To serve another's interest. That's all it is. To serve another's interest. And to serve another's interest means to set aside personal interests. It means that we have to esteem others better than ourselves, as Scripture says. Serving takes a spirit of humility. And that was the spirit that Onesiphorus showed in ministering to Paul in both Rome and Ephesus. Most of us struggle in our relationships because the spirit of selfless humility is absent 
It's just not there. And modern society has invented terms. Yeah, these are psychological terms. Psychotherapy terms like narcissistic and a megalomaniac. You ever heard some of those? Like, well, what does that mean? You know, God's given us some very simple terms in his word. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's pretty simple. Though a hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. Proverbs 16, 5. Here's another one for you. Only by pride cometh contention. Did you catch that? Only by pride cometh contention. Pride goeth before destruction. A man's pride shall bring him low. Why is it that we struggle to serve others? Old-fashioned pride. The first sin is our sin. The first sin is Lucifer's sin. I will be like the Most High. I will exalt myself. And pride is the sin that we still struggle with the very most today. Every relationship problem that has ever been has been caused by pride. Somebody had too much I in the conversation. I'm looking out for number one. So I don't have any desire to look out for you. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't have that attitude. The Bible says he took upon himself the form of a servant. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. Can I tell you why you're struggling in that relationship with your wife or your husband or your young person or your coworker or your friend? Pride. Somebody isn't getting what somebody thinks he deserves. And now there's a struggle. Remember what we said a minute ago? Only by pride cometh contention. And here's what we, here's what we think. But it's not my problem. It's her problem. It's not my problem. It's his problem. Okay? Well, you're arguing with God on this one because he said, only by pride cometh contention. You say, well, he's proud. Well, she's proud. You got that right. You know, contentions caused many times by pride on both sides of the relationship. If we could all just get a scriptural view of ourselves for just a second, just to be really blunt and throw it out there for you, what we deserve is eternal death. That's what we deserve. What we deserve is justice before our Creator. And any time this thought crosses your mind, I didn't get what I deserve. Stop yourself right there and thank the Lord that you didn't. The pastor, you don't understand. When he did, she did, or he said, she said, they thought he went, I ended up being hurt, and I didn't deserve that. Right, right. But what you did deserve, what I'm telling you, what you did deserve, and what you do deserve 
is eternal condemnation before a righteous and holy God. That's hard to swallow. Why? Pride. If we could get our eyes on the eternal, we won't struggle so much in our temporal relationships. See, I can serve God and others with love and grace because the humility of Christ saved my soul. Onesiphorus served. He ministered with humility. You could call him up at any hour of the day or night and ask him for something, and he wouldn't blink. He'd be there. I thank the Lord for our deacons and officers here at Centennial. I could call any one of them up at 1130 at night and say, I need you to come, and I know they're ready to serve. We, we have staff members, Brother James Seyfried. Now, his mom's here today. She raised a good boy. Actually, she's got another one behind her, and he's a pretty good guy too, except for his beard. No, I like Josh. He's the quiet man. You know, I could call James Seyfried up, 6.30 on a Tuesday night and say, James, I need you to get down with a uh, broom and a dustpan and start sweeping the parking lot. You know what he'd say? Okay. And he'd do it. Now you say, Pastor, that's not service. That's stupidity. He's just not that smart. But that's not true. He's got a servant's heart. He would do anything for anybody if it helped him. And he just got some service and ministry and humility there. And I thank God for people like that. But you know, we have to be willing to be humble. We have to say it's not about us, it's about serving others. But I'm telling you, the reason that we struggle to serve others is that we are so in love with ourselves. You say, well, I'm not in love with myself. I hate my eyebrows. I've actually never said that, but... I hate my hair. I hate my body type or whatever it is. Yeah, but you spend two hours a day trying to work on it. So what that means is you love yourself. False humility is P-R-I-D-E, pride. False humility is saying, well, I'm not like her and I couldn't fit into this. And I know I'm hitting on the women here a little bit. I'll get to the guys in a second. We get this false humility thing going And all it shows is that we are self-centered. We care about our image and our feelings and our authority. We get to the man right there. He's not listening to me. She is not giving me the proper respect in the relationship. Did I get masculine enough there? And with men, it's about authority and about honor. And don't they know who I am? And I'm your father. Don't you speak to me like that. Why is that? Pride. Pride. Well, I should have gotten a raise if he did. Can't believe she got a raise. I've been here longer. Can't believe he got the promotion. Did they not look at what I've done for this company? And in every relationship, in every place we go, we struggle 
with pride every day. I guarantee you, if you look at my prayer journal for the last 15 years, the word pride is in it like 300 times a year. You know why? Because I struggle with it, same as you, every day. We don't like to give over and submit. And if we won't submit to earthly relationships, here's all that means. We aren't submitting to our heavenly relationship. Because if everything's right vertically, everything will totally be right horizontally. And I'm going to say something and you're not going to believe it and you're not going to like it. If you have a problem in a horizontal relationship, it is only because you have a problem in your vertical relationship. If you have a problem in any horizontal relationship, it's because something in your soul is wrong. You say, Pastor, what about abuse and what about crimes? I'm not talking about that. When people do crimes against you, that's a different thing. I'm talking about in a normal relationship. And we have to evaluate this vertical thing. We have to get the spirit of humility that Onesiphorus had and be willing to help those in need, no matter who they are, no matter where it is, to the glory of God. And that's what Onesiphorus did. You say, but pastor, wait just a second. He was trying to help the Apostle Paul, and he was just trying to do it to get in good. Yeah, because there were tons of other people who were running to meet Paul. Every person Paul knew had fled. Paul's going to say later on in chapter 4, only Luke is with me. Every person I know has left me. They've all turned their back on me. Only Luke's still here. Onesiphorus did this because he had the right heart. When we study his life, we learn some important things about who we are. Deep inside of every one of us, there's a struggle that goes on. And sometimes we think, well, yeah, I admit I'm, I'm lazy about some things. Or maybe I lose interest quickly. Maybe when I'm talking to my wife at home, I don't really pay full attention. Check. Uh, that one's me. You know what the sin is there? It's not inattention. It's pride. You say, Pastor, how's that pride? It's because I think that I'm more important than she is. I think that what I'm watching the golf, or the football, or what I'm working on is more important than her concerns at that time. Ouch, ouch, ouch. You know who that hurts? Me. Because I just had to stand up here and admit it to you people. It's pride. When your little girl comes to you and says, Daddy, I need to talk to you. They say, I don't have time right now. I'm working on something really important. And it's not something really important. You know what that is? Pride. You just made yourself more important than the soul of your child. Years from now, you're not going to be able to hear those cute little words. 
She's going to be out of the house and gone. And if you don't invest in his soul today, he's gone. And you may never get another chance to invest in his soul. And what I'm talking about today is a guy, Onesiphorus, who had humility in his soul. And the byproduct was outward ministry. And what we do is we get it backward. We think that if we can invent some type of outward ministry or project that we do, or checklist that we have, that now I'm a good Christian because I'm doing this and this and this and this. Christianity is not about what you do. It's about who you are. And that spirit of humility is what we all need today. Would you bow with me in prayer? Maybe God is working somehow in your life today. Yeah, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond. I even held my message a few minutes short today because I really would like God to be able to work on our hearts however He sees fit. Whatever the Holy Spirit would have. And so as, as we have an invitation in just a second, what I'm going to ask you to do is just to respond however God would have you to respond. Respond to a Savior who hung on a cross for your sins. And keep that in mind. Father, would you work in our hearts today? We are so fallible. We're so unclean. We're so proud. And we yearn for your holiness. We yearn for your truth. We yearn for true service, the humility in our lives. And so I pray that you would help the first step to be taken today, that we would humbly step out and come before you with our hearts and with our souls, and that you would prepare us to be used by you with eternal rewards in view. Guide us now. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Would you stand as you stand? Brother Dave's going to sing. The altar's open. You do whatever it is that God's laid on your heart this morning. Would you come right now?